Welcome to Pieces of Art, a podcast about ancient art, modern art, and everything in between. There's a photo that made the rounds of the internet a while ago of a framed picture of Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan Kenobi that someone had apparently mistaken for a picture of Jesus Christ. If you're even vaguely familiar with Christianity, you should probably know that the historical Jesus was a first-century Jew from the Middle East. So why is it that some people are more likely to see Jesus in Ewan McGregor than, say, Sasha Royce or Andrew Garfield? The answer is, well, complicated. First off, let me get a couple of things out of the way. Like the, yep, I'm biased and here's what it is so you understand where I'm coming from, disclaimer. Uh, yep, I'm a devout Christian. Well, I'm actually Mormon, which means a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which means that I'm basically an early Christian heretic, at least as far as Catholicism and most branches of Protestantism and Orthodoxy are concerned. I'm also a scholar, and that means that my job is to separate faith-based discussions from science-based or academic discussions. Maybe I'll use that as a topic for another podcast, about how the search for truth can encompass both science and religion, and how science actually keeps faith from going off the rails, but <clears throat> we'll put that on the board for some time later. On to what turned Jesus from a Mediterranean Jew into a Scottish Jedi. There is no scientific documented record of Jesus' appearance. None. He was a poor tradesman from a marginalized minority culture in the backwoods of beyond who didn't even speak proper Greek, much less Latin. He spoke Aramaic. He was nobody. If I were going to give a modern-day equivalent, I'd say... Think of Jesus as a Native American, maybe a Navajo medicine man, one who doesn't usually speak either Spanish or English, but sticks with Navajo, and only talks to other Navajos unless he happens to run into a really weird situation. <laughs> That's actually starting to sound a little like a Tony Hillerman novel. Anyway, people have been trying to fix this whole, oh, what did Jesus look like question, ever since Christianity stopped being a Jewish sect and started being its own separate religion. Jewish Christians weren't particularly comfortable with the idea of portraits. Jesus is the Son of God, after all, and images of God are forbidden by the Second Commandment. Gentile Christians, on the other hand, uh, and, by the way, Gentile just means everyone who isn't Jewish. It's the Judaic equivalent of the Greek and Roman barbarian, which means everyone who isn't Greek or Roman. Anyway, Gentile Christians didn't have a problem with pictures, and particularly portraits. Portraits to the people of the Roman Empire were vitally important. They proved that a person had lived, but even more, they provided a link between past and present, between ancestors and descendants. They were as embedded in Roman society as they are in today's society, if not quite as widespread. Well, portraits were more expensive back then. Now, if you didn't know what a historical person, a, a person of importance like Socrates or Plato, had looked like, that didn't really matter much. You simply took what you knew about his character and his ethnicity, and you whipped up a physiognomic look-alike. Ta-da! There was your portrait, or portrait-like image that was close enough for what you needed, which was usually just a reference to, uh, if it's Socrates or Plato, philosophy. Now, 
Roman artists who took up the challenge of depicting Jesus had some pretty heavy lifting to do. After all, how do you depict the Son of God when the parent culture, Judaism, had a strict no-pictures policy? Well, being Romans, they decided that what Christ actually looked like wasn't nearly as important as what he represented, and so they looked at his characteristics, and they chose a pattern for depicting Jesus based on models that they already had. They boiled it down to two options, Hercules or Jupiter, and Apollo. The Hercules model uh, is the powerful, bearded, working-class guy who went down to Hades and came back again, went through all sorts of trials and tribulations. His father was the ruler of Olympus, so that worked pretty well. The Apollo model, however, was a little more popular. Apollo, also a son of Jupiter, or Zeus if you're Greek, but Apollo is the god of poetry and song and sunlight and prophecy, all of which are strongly associated with Christ. And so is wine, and Apollo and Dionysus are pretty much joined at the hip, but that's another discussion. So, Apollo becomes more popular as the way of depicting Christ. Uh, And that means that sometimes when we see a depiction of Apollo or his alter ego Helios, it's sometimes difficult to know whether we're looking at Apollo, Helios, or Christ. By the way, a thousand years later, when Michelangelo was working on his masterpiece Fresco of the Last Judgment for the Sistine Chapel, he painted the Apollo-type Christ. He knew his early Christianity and his theology. All right, so we've got this Apollo-type Christ that everybody knows, everybody understands, everybody gets it. But it wasn't good enough. Then as now, People wanted to know what Christ really looked like, and there started becoming a theological reason behind it, too, this idea of icons. There's a really famous icon from St. Catherine's Monastery in Sinai, yes, uh, where Moses talked with God, came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, saw the burning bush, all of that. Uh, There's a big old Christian monastery there. Now, this icon that is housed in the St. Catherine Monastery is called the Pantocrator icon, and it is such a cool painting just in and of itself that I love discussing it ad infinitum. Um, If you Google it, you might not believe me at first, but trust me, when you start discussing it in class, it's very cool. But it looks nothing like either Hercules or Apollo. It looks like a very lean Semitic man with shoulder-length hair, holding a book in one hand and making a sign with the other. Before we get into that, I should probably explain what an icon is, because that's where all of these portraits of Christ, or all these concepts of Christ, come from in the end. An icon is a painting that acts as a catalyst for connecting the devout believer to the divine. It's sort of along the lines of a spiritual cell phone, and it's really popular in Orthodox Christianity, uh, and it also has a strong place in Catholic Christianity. Interestingly enough, Protestant Christians of pretty much every denomination I can think of absolutely reject icons. So, just FYI. All right, so a catalyst for connecting the devout believer to the divine, like a spiritual cell phone. And bear with me, because this analogy actually works really well. Think of heaven as a huge corporation where God is the CEO, Jesus is the publicity guy, and the face of the corporation, and the Holy Ghost is, uh, we'll call him customer service. You might need something that the company provides. 
but you're not necessarily going to get through to the CEO with most of your concerns. He's busy and intimidating, and he's delegated a whole bunch of other people for that. Uh, So you could conceivably talk to Jesus, to the publicity guy, but you might not be able to get through because he's really, really popular. What you really want is you really want to talk to someone who can answer your personal problem directly and immediately, right? So if you know somebody who is in charge of, say, plumbing or home appliances or the home goods section of whatever corporation you're dealing with, that's the person you want to talk to, right? Uh, And so you want that person's phone number. Now, in the corporate metaphor for Christian heaven, the employees who are in charge of various departments are all of the saints, and each of the saints has has his own particular or her own particular role and um, purview over which they have the most influence or the most understanding. Now, just as you have to know the right extension in order for your call to go through to whoever you want to talk to who knows your problem, an icon has to depict the right saint in the right way if you're going to be able to get through on the spiritual cell phone line. Here's where things get interesting. The icon has to be an accurate as possible portrait of the saint, or it won't work. And here's where the Pentocrator icon comes in. Along with a few relics, like the Veronica or the Shroud of Turin or other objects that claim to have impressions of Christ's face, um, the icon has this ability to connect with Christ. If you believe that a direct line to someone can be established if you have an accurate picture, then of course you're going to want the direct line to Christ, right? He's the guy. Now, there are a few stories about how these portraits showed up. In some stories, the portrait of the saint, Virgin Mary or Christ, is painted by the hand of God himself. That makes it twice legitimate, right? It's a miraculous painting, it's accurate, and God himself painted it, so icons are clearly okay, in spite of whatever Jewish Christians uh, who are um, toting the second commandment might say right? Um, Now, in the Veronica, which is a different relic, right? It's a handkerchief relic. Christ's sweat left an imprint on the cloth that she pressed to his face while he was walking and trudging up the hill to Calvary. Uh, Calvary, good heavens. Um, Yes, it's Calvary, not cavalry. We are not talking about horses. We're talking about a mountain. Calvary, where he would be crucified. Uh, Either way, there's a claim to accuracy based on either divine knowledge or physical interaction. Now, accuracy is only half of the story. In order for an icon to be accepted as a real, legitimate spiritual artifact, it has to work. So, first you have your object, your portrait, and you've made it as best as you can. And then right? Miracles happen. So, for example, uh, stories about the miraculous events surrounding these icons. One icon was paraded around the city in times of sickness, uh, and then the plague went away. 
it was paraded around the city during a siege and the siege was broken. Um, a miraculous healing occurs when someone prays in front of it. Some lost child is found. It, it, all of the usual miracles that can be associated with an icon prove its legitimacy. That makes the image a, a correct image and that will propagate then the image, right? This is the correct, this is the number to call. And so everybody wants that number because they know that number will get through. All right, the Pantocrator icon, which dates to about the sixth century, is one of these kinds of images, a miraculously derived, accurate as possible portrait of Christ. And because it has this reputation, it gets copied, oh my word, everywhere. As we go farther west, however, it slowly gets more and more European. And now we have to jump ship for a minute and head over into Western Europe and Gaul and England for a while. Western Europeans, see, didn't even have a portrait tradition when Christianity showed up the first time. Their Roman conquerors did, but they didn't. And when Christianity showed up for the second time, uh, it's a long story, they still didn't really have a portraiture tradition. They eventually adopted Roman traditions along with Roman Christianity, but it took centuries. Once they had that construct of regularly depicting people, uh, they had to find ways of depicting all the people who were involved in the stories of Christ's life. So they're basically inventing, for them, a whole new genre of art. Now, Western European artists weren't all that concerned with ethnicity and accuracy and whether or not it's an icon. Uh, actually, in Western Europe, relics were more important than icons. Um, relics are physical objects that, are, that can be associated with the saints, and Rome was chock full of skeletons, which are perfect icons. Uh, uh, sorry, not icons, relics. I keep on, I'm sorry, I was distracted by thinking about Hellboy and his little Dionysus pinky, which makes me laugh every single time. Anyway, um, so when these Western European artists are starting to depict people, uh, on a regular basis and not just stylized human faces like what they did in Gallic or Celtic art, but actual people, they started copying people they knew. Other barbarians like them, Franks and Germans and Britons and Celts. So their depictions of Christ were based on their own experiences. Judea was way, way far away on the other side of the world. Uh, and Jews were strange people with strange clothes and strange ways of speaking. Somehow Jews always end up getting the short end of the stick. Anyway, for several hundred years, Germans and Franks rule the roost in the West, uh, in Western Europe, both figuratively, politically, uh, and sometimes religiously as well. That means that all constructs of power, visually and metaphorically, are going to be connected with these once-upon-a-time barbarians. So, we have Franks and Germans who connect themselves to Christ in order to give themselves more legitimacy and more power. And we have Christ as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords being depicted more and more like a German or Frankish king, like what everybody was familiar with, and there you have it. That's how Jesus went from being a Jew to being a Scot. 
Now, in the back of my head, I'm hearing all of these urban legends about people who claim to have seen Jesus, waking up from near-death experiences, pointing to pictures of European Jesus and saying, that's him, and giving legitimacy to whatever painting of Christ someone decides to believe is the most accurate. This kind of thing has been going on since so ever. (laughs) You can read, actually, some of Gary Vikan's studies on icons if you want to know more about it. But in a nutshell, there's a handy little cycle of legitimacy that ends up happening with these kinds of stories. You have an idea of what someone is supposed to look like, and that idea is going to be a cultural construct. Um, it's going to be based on your traditions, you, the people you know, or the constructs that have been built around this person. You see this person in a vision, uh, you later see a painting that looks similar, and you identify it as that person, and voila, you have just reinforced a cultural stereotype. Yay! Now, that's not to say that your cultural stereotype might be inaccurate. It might actually be a true representation of whatever person you saw in your vision. In this case, since we're talking about Christ, we'll say you actually saw Christ in a vision. That's fine. But we have no way of empirically verifying that data, right? And this is where the difference between faith and science comes in. You may or may not have actually seen Christ. That's faith, right? What Christ actually looked like, that's data. And since we don't have any empirical data, any guess is good, as long as it works in the context of a first-century Mediterranean Jew. This has been an episode of Pieces of Art, a podcast about ancient art, modern art, and everything in between. Thanks for listening.